that was it took a little bit of uh, explanation to the art world because they what they saw was well there was a rug pull or there was a decommissioning of a site that was the biggest platform. So what does it mean for artists? And there is a skepticism of where will my art go? Like, where is it even, right? Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Floor is Rising, with host Sabretooth, a professional NFT collector, and Kizu, a professional art critic. On this podcast, we talk deeply about the business of creating, collecting, and analyzing NFTs. So... If you are a creator or a collector of NFTs, jump in. The water is warm. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Floor is Rising. I'm Sabertooth. With me is Kisu and our special guest today, Mark Soares. He's the chief marketing officer of Blockhouse, a marketing agency, well, very, very, very much tied in with the Tezos blockchain. Thank you, guys. Really, really happy to be here. Mark, tell us. What's the story of how you sort of became aware of NFTs? And So prior to officially becoming part of the Web3 and blockchain category, I ran marketing and communications for a company called Nikon for all the Americas. And it's a camera company, for those who are not familiar. And um, I actually was heavily involved in, in blockchain just as a, as a hobby. And I had the sudden realization about January of 2021 that NFTs are going to be a thing. And in fact, my, my biggest kind of, what compelled me the most to enter the category was this realization that there's nothing stopping a camera company from making NFTs straight from the camera. There's, there's literally nothing stopping it from happening right at the shutter button press. And I, I remember having several discussions about that. And of course, with the realization that there's all this potential and there's all this creativity and artwork uh, taking place, I decided to actually make the shift and join the Tezos ecosystem, one of the teams uh, that was called TQ. And soon after that, I created a, uh, an agency that's basically catering blockchain and Web3 and specifically the Tezos ecosystem. Um, and we basically facilitate all types of uh, projects, whether it's advertising, PR, social. But of course, a lot of it is related to technical connection with the blockchain and NFTs right at that point, uh, March of 2021, they, they really took off. Like if you were to look at the trends in, in traffic soon after March, that's where NFTs became really, really huge. Um, and it's been quite a ride since then. A lot of collectors, for example, had spent the early part of COVID getting acquainted with NFTs. A lot of them in, in the art media, you know, re- reportedly were interested. And then a lot of galleries that were offering uh, NFTs specifically, such as, you know, Nagel Draxler from Berlin, for example, mm-hmm. uh, reported that, for example, they would have clients who are interested and then, but they were kind of illiterate crypto-wise and uh, they would buy the NFT first with their wallet and then help their clients set up the wallet, transfer mm-hmm. it and so on and so on. So there's like kind of like quick, you know, a uh, steep learning curve, a transition. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because I think that you observed firsthand that kind of early period where, you know, the so-called traditional or contemporary art world was getting onboarded. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the last year has been, it's just so much, uh, it's so much activity. We were, we're fairly fortunate as an ecosystem and Tezos was, it just happened to be like a perfect storm. And, and I'll elaborate a little bit on that because March, 
really starts taking off in terms of NFTs. And then there's this period of skepticism for two reasons from the mainstream audience. Number one is that there's a lot of hype in terms of, you know, people selling for 60 plus million dollars and all the other projects that are accumulating a lot of value very quickly. And then, so there's this natural, I would say natural skepticism for a category that's, you know, quite, uh, quite foamy, as some might say. Then as, uh, soon after that, there was the, a wave of skepticism more in parallel to that, that was related to the energy impact of a blockchain. It actually happened, I believe, about, I want to say April, April, May, it really started taking off in terms of people's realization that there's a, you know, a carbon footprint to a blockchain. And of course, there's a carbon footprint to everything. Uh, if you're alive, you've got a carbon footprint. But uh, I think people really started scrutinizing that. And then there was the New York Times article that happened uh, right around that time. So you got you to gotta put yourself back in that period where you see all this momentum, all this growth. There's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of hype. There's some projects that you know they're not going to make it, but they're getting the spotlight you know, at, at the moment in time. And then you, you start to realize, wait a minute, like there's a maturity happening in this technology and there's real utility. It's not, you know, it's not all hype. There's certainly, there's an amount of it, but there's actual use cases. So what we were looking at was, okay, we've got a very organic growth taking place in, in Tezos that's attracting a lot of individual artists. We're, we're, at that time, we weren't even seeing institutional adoption. We were seeing individual artists that were attracted to it because there was a platform called Hikanuk that became fairly quickly, I believe in three months, it became the largest NFT platform by volume, uh, not necessarily by value, but by volume, the number of mints and trades taking place, it was the number one. And that attracted a tremendous amount of talent. And that was global. It wasn't like market specific. It certainly originated in Brazil. And there was there's good reasons why Tezos was selected you know, to have this kind of organic movement. What we're seeing from, a, at least from my standpoint in marketing, we were looking at, there's a very healthy organic movement where artists are being onboarded. And we knew we had to get the credibility because we have the street cred. Like as a platform, we've got the street cred because the artists are there, but we didn't have the corporate cred. So it was about, I want to say May, where we started looking at opportunities with institutions and Art fairs and Art Basel was, you know, really the the obvious one, and we reached out and coordinated that very early. You know, with with the level of uncertainty that we we had in terms of our NFTs were going to be a thing in three months, because with blockchain it's always a possibility that things uh, people move on. Uh, but we were fairly confident that it would be important to make a statement. So we ended up coordinating for Art Basel. It was a several months project to plan it out because we had a, a really unique collaboration with with an amazing artist, uh, Mario Klingemann, who creates this awesome generative artwork. And um, we also created, uh, curated a series of panel discussions on site. And it was the largest space um, allocated to a brand, I believe that Art Basel has ever allocated. It was, it was fairly substantial. And of course, you were able to go in, see the beautiful artwork from a collection of artists from around the Tezos ecosystem, I think you mentioned essentially what in the modern history of Tezos kind of launched sort of Tezos, which is the 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 you know Hikeknunk platform. You saying that that was kind of not on your radar when when it launched. It was kind of serendipitous how that basically took off. Well, I mean the Hikeknunk we were we were monitoring very closely. 
okay. because we knew that Hickenuke started before Blockhouse officially started. And the teams that were working within the Tesla's ecosystem were all keenly aware because you know, I'll be honest with you. I was minting on Hickenuke, you know, like it was the platform to, to do it. in. so all the, I think a lot of people don't realize that the teams that work within the Tezos ecosystem were all kind of Tezos nerds. You know, we all use the technology and there was a lot of creativity and, and you could see that there was something real and organic happening at Hickenuke. And then of course, you know, from the social buzz that it was generating. And I think that became very apparent why it was so successful early on. Number one, it was the minting fees were negligible. Like we're talking like 11 cents at the time to, to mint an NFT. And it's just, it was unheard of because you, you had to pay, you know, significantly more in other platforms. Uh, and then the other reason was the energy efficient aspect of Tezos, which again, you, it was kind of a perfect storm because you've had these two things happening. You got a huge momentum for NFTs taking place because creatives of all walks of life are basically saying, hey, I get to finally own my stuff and skip the middleman and interact directly with my fan base, certainly sell them my work, but also engage with them directly. And then you have this realization of, wait a minute, as a creative, can I really do this knowing the, the environmental impact that my actions may have? You know, And whether you agree with it or not, there was a realization from the artist community that there was a consideration that needed to, to be done. And, and so Tezos, you know, in, in the middle of all of this, people are like, hey, wait a minute, Tesla's got, you know, almost no minting fees, like comparatively speaking, and it's energy efficient. And that means that if you're in Brazil, you can mint NFTs just as easily as if you're in New York or in, in Paris. The economic uh, barriers are, are really not there when you, when you have this accessibility. So we did notice Hick and Nuke as it evolved. And the only thing we were trying to really offset was to add the corporate or institutional kind of layer and, and credibility and certainly the prestige of an entity like Art Basel, which we greatly respect and admire. And maybe I'll, I'll get you to, to, to speak about, I guess, the evolution and, and, and the death, I guess, of Hickenu, or maybe not the death, but the, well, the, the, the quitting of the, the founder. Yes. The many, the many <laughs> yeah. lives of Hickenu. Yeah, yeah, the metamorphosis of Hickenu. Maybe you can talk a bit about that, how you kind of saw it. How do you think that affected? I believe it's the first true Web3 use case ever that, that actually shows the strength of Web3 and why, why it's uh, really unstoppable. So Hickenu was started by uh, a brilliant developer from Brazil. He just built it. It had, it had this kind of uh, grunge feel. If you're familiar with it, you, you know what I'm talking about. There's a very unique quality to it. Initially, you're, you're kind of, it's jarring, right? Because the, the interface was very different, but then you kind of grow to love it. You know, so there was a, a real grungy kind of uh, attitude to it. And certainly it was a lot of that attitude was from the uh, ethos of the founder of the platform, but also because he was very open to, having participation from the community to help him build what was built. Uh, so there was certainly a, a, a collaborative effort that took place. And I, I won't speak to the degree of, of which that happened because I'm not uh, informed enough to know how much the, the group, the collective contributed versus him. But um, I do know that there was a collective effort there. And so this thing gets built and really, really fast becomes the biggest platform. Again, by volume, it was just crazy to see the, the number of NFTs that were being created. And then uh, sadly, I forget the exact 
date that it, it happened. But it, the the founder decided that he no longer wanted to continue the platform uh, for for whatever reason, and the platform was decommissioned overnight. So he, he essentially you know pulled the domain, and if you were to type in Hickenuke, it was a dead link. It was a four hundred four. Now the interesting thing is because the way the Hickenuke had been built was all open source and available. Effectively, any team could pick it up and redeploy it, and they did in less than twenty four hours. In fact. I, I've heard it as as short a figure as two hours. Basically, like as soon as it was turned off, it was reactivated because all the NFTs were uh, on IPFS. I believe they are on IPFS. They were able to be uh, just the Ekanuk was basically able to be redeployed, and you didn't skip a beat. And that's amazing, right? Because if Facebook was to be turned off today, it's not like a team in you know uh, Asia can just suddenly redeploy within two hours the same exact platform. Like it's really hard to kill a platform that's that decentralized, that that's built in a way that can just be redeployed so seamlessly. You know, there was a little bit of chaos that happened within that period in terms of people asking, well, what does it mean for a platform to just go offline? But actually it proves the case of Web3 and it proves why you need to have blockchain powered platforms so that there isn't a, a central entity or an, an intermediary that can do that. And so what seemed like really sad news for everyone who was passionate about Tezos and minting on Hickenuke, it suddenly became this realization that, hey, that's pretty cool. Like you can't kill it. You, you, you really can't kill it. You, you can tr- try the best effort and you'll still fail at it because if it's, if it's owned by the community effectively and the community can carry on using it and and uh, without skipping a beat. So that was the realization that came soon after. And it was pretty cool to, to see the community just rally. And, you know, I, I have jokingly say the many lives of Hick and Nuke, but I, actually it's true because it was, the rebirth and the metamorphosis, it basically multiplied into four different platforms. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think that's, it's one of my favorite uh, use cases. And it just goes to show how passionate the artists are on Tezos, that they, they won't let this thing fade away. I'm, I'm curious about how that, how, for example, the contemporary art world, our Basel crowd, as it were, uh, perceive that. Yeah, t- totally. Um, so th- th- I, I am having memories of being at our Basel, and, and actually the Hick and Nuke kind of decommissioning when it went offline, it was about two weeks before our Basel, if I remember correctly, maybe two and a half weeks. And I remember we were <laughs> planning and we had, you know, there's, there's there's stuff that goes on the walls that has links and you know the artists all have links to their pages and at the time it was Hick and Nuke pages so you know we were building all that stuff and I, I remember thinking well well this could be a problem because obviously if the site is still decommissioned and we didn't know if if the founder was going to change course or not it was uncertain there was not communication there so we were kind of in limbo trying to determine okay. Which, how, where are we going to drive traffic to for the artists because they have their work there? And, uh, and then we had to make the uh, decision. Um, and the artists also advised like object.com and other platforms that are available. So we're able to accommodate, but actually did create a little bit of chaos for us for a few days. Um, regarding your question, how the art world perceived that, you know, sadly enough, there was a couple of headlines that were pretty, um, I think, um, maybe alarmist. 
that essentially equated Hickenuke being offline as, as a rug pull, which, which it absolutely is not. In, in terms of the art, the NFT artwork is still there. Like it's on the blockchain. It was done right in that uh, everything is, you know, on IPFS and accessible. And that's why you could effectively reactivate it from a different team. They literally can just reactivate this thing and, and have it run smoothly. And that was, it took a little bit of uh, explanation to the art world because what they saw was, well, there was a rug pull or there was a decommissioning of a site that was the biggest platform. Uh, so what does it mean for artists? And th- there is a skepticism of what, where will my art uh, go? Like, where is it uh, even, right? And, and th- those are important questions. In fact, it became, I think, a topic of discussion of, okay, wait a minute, guys, you have NFTs. But there's an infrastructure that supports the NFTs. There's a location where the image lives. There's a pinning service that, you know, you, you have to use in order to pin it, um, in order to reference it. And then you, you have the marketplace where the, the transaction takes place, records the transaction on the blockchain, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So these are different components. And it kind of, uh, it was actually very helpful because basically Hickenu going offline, peeled the, the cover off of, you know, most uh, NFT structures now, I'm not just saying Tesla specific, I'm talking about every every marketplace out there where people are asking, well, where's the NFT stored, right? And is it, are you building it right? Because if you were, if the marketplace were to turn it off today, where's my NFT? Can I still access it, et cetera? Those are really important questions to answer. Now, if you build the marketplace like Hickenuke was built, you don't have a problem. Other marketplaces might have a problem because you know, you decommission this and the artist or the, the consumer can't even access their NFT. Well, you there's a liability. So I think the topic of discussion definitely touched on that. And I remember having discussions in Art Basel kind of explaining, look, the, the, this is actually what you want to see it is not, not that you ever want to do, you know, live surgery on a, on a patient like this, but, um, if you're going to go through a use case where you essentially prove whether blockchain and Web3 can survive and, and has a future, this is it. Because you decommission the site and everything still runs. And that's, that's the best case scenario. But you got to get past the kind of alarmist headlines that unfortunately hit once that, once that happened. I think in, in my experience has been that these folks are wary not so much of the technology, but it's it's the kind of like what is the legal recourse in in the real world that's going to be available yeah. should the technology you know not behave as as promised, basically. Have you ever wondered why the photography hasn't really taken off in terms of NFTs? Because I, I have a, a fairly extensive background in in interfacing with photographers, and I have a pet theory as to why that is, but. It's really interesting that in terms of how different categories of art uh, perceive work and, and what is being sold. So it's, uh, I, I think, like looking at the category of photography, th- this is a very savvy, from a legal standpoint, because they have to be a savvy artist, because they, they never, like, they sell licenses to their images. That's what their business is. You know, a photographer typically doesn't sell the photo. They don't sell the negative. They don't sell, they, they, most of them don't sell prints. Only very few, you know, are 
doing gallery work and selling prints as a source of income. So the majority of art of photographers are selling rights to images. And so when I've interfaced with photographers, it's a very different perspective that they bring to the, the whole NFT thing, because they ask, well, what license am I giving when I sell an NFT? Like they mm -hmm. want to know how many years, what is the geographic area that the, the image is going to be used for? What are the commercial terms? And this is how they think. And frankly, it's like how a businessman thinks in terms of selling digital artwork. But if you talk to a painter or a sculptor, you know, they, they are accustomed to selling the work. So to them, it's like, okay, it's like the physical work that I sell and that makes sense, but it's digital. I can understand that. But a photographer is saying, oh no, I'm not selling the negative. I'll never sell the negative. That's my recurring source of uh, income. I'll mm -hmm. sell an image, but I need to know what the terms are. Otherwise, I'm not even getting involved. You know, so you, you have this uh, other narrative in terms or, or point of discussion, which is, can we really solidify the rules of engagement when you're selling for a use case, not necessarily selling the work itself, the, just a one of one, for example, that is the entire work, but selling usage for the image itself and I think that will be a tremendous use case for um, NFTs and the Getty Images of the world, et cetera, I'm sure are investigating it as well. And they're quite good mm -hmm. at doing that. Tezos has been kind of unique in that it's kind of, I think, the first blockchain that has essentially bootstrapped most of its sort of L1 activity from, from NFTs, right? Starting with Hikaknol, but, you know, now, you know, there's, there, there's a lot of sort of marketplaces on Tezos and, you know, compared to, I guess the, you know, the, I mean, there's three major sort of NFT ecosystem slash blockchains, right? There's, there's Tezos, there's the Solana, and then there's Ethereum, both Solana, Ethereum are pretty DeFi heavy compared to Tezos, which is, you know, very NFT heavy compared to the amount of DeFi activity that's going on. I guess here, your perspective of, I guess, on the, on the positioning of, of Tezos and specifically Tezos NFTs, you know, within, I guess, the broader sort of NFT ecosystem, right? Especially compared to or compared against um, Solana and, and Ethereum. Yeah, absolutely. So I can tell you from the, the many, many discussions that I've had with artists, institutions and brands, um, and really stemming from the middle of last year, there's three things that make Tezos attractive to do NFTs on. And, uh, and I need to touch on these because it's important from a positioning standpoint. So the number one is the little transaction fees, which are really, really important. The majority of artists there that were onboarded early to Tezos was by virtue of not having to pay $200 to mint an NFT. It, it became an escape to that uh, kind of structure. Number two was the energy efficient story, which we already touched on. Number three, which is actually quite important, and it's the whole, the reason for Tezos being what it is. So it makes Tezos really special. And that's the on-chain governance, which allows it to up, self-upgrade and evolve. Now, you wouldn't think that applies to NFTs, but actually it becomes critical for basically every brand out in the world, whether you're an Art Basel, a museum, or a Coca-Cola. The recurring theme when discussing NFTs for very large global brands has always ended on the topic of what happens if the chain forks? Okay, because if the chain forks, you end up with two NFTs instead of one. And then if that chain forks, you end up with two of those. And then the, from a brand standpoint, you, you know, you're dealing with 
these companies that are uh, they have large uh, they have a lot of IP and they have a large process for dealing with their IP legal and branding and you know uh, from a revenue standpoint. So they're looking at it and saying, wait a minute, if the chain forks and I have to support two chains, you know that's burden on me and I don't have any control over it. And there's an infinite number of forks that can happen, which means there's an infinite no- amount of exposure that I have from an operational standpoint to support these different branches of of the uh, of the forks where my NFTs live. And that right there it just causes them to say, wait, I don't, I don't want that. That can't be the that can't be the only way. So obviously Tezos can also fork, but the beauty of it is that it does not have to. It can do things without forking. And that has ended up being one of the key reasons why the Red Bulls of the world, the McLarens, the the uh, Manchester United uh, of the world, et cetera, actually select Tezos for their um, NFT activities. So I know that I'm touching on the brand and corporate side, but those are the three main things. It's price for transaction, energy efficiency, because that's a corporate social responsibility and ESG compliance. Every brand globally needs to be mindful of that. It's not a, it's really not a choice. They, they literally have to uh, make sure that whatever they use is being respectful of the resources and energy efficient is always going to be favored. So they always have to check that box. And then third is the exposure that they may be uh, put through in terms of maintaining and supporting this endless infinite number of forks where their NFTs live in. So uh, when we go to market different activities on Tezos, we're always pretty upfront in terms of this type of messaging. We, we like to communicate that because it's what we've seen when we have to pitch almost to these large companies and brands. These are the things that resonate with them. So from a corporate standpoint, that's, uh, that's the messaging and that's what sets Tezos apart. From an artist standpoint, it's totally different. And it's actually very difficult to make sure that the two do not commingle in terms of the messaging. Like obviously you can target through advertising and such, and you can keep it somewhat separate. But it's you don't want to lose the grungy feel that you have with the Hick and Nukes and the organic artist community. So you have to let that community kind of thrive and, and do their own thing because it's a big selling point for Tezos as a brand and as an ecosystem to have all these, frankly, all these cool people creating amazing artwork. So in and of itself, that community ends up being a, a pretty big differentiator. But at the same time, you have to look at the nuts and bolts of what makes Tezos special for, you know, the Coca-Cola's of the world or Nike's or Adidas or et cetera. And these three things become deal breakers. So you message those to to the corporate side and then you uh, lead by actually emphasizing the creativity on the organic side, which means creating a series of content to spotlight different artists making sure that you raise social awareness from the social channels uh, standpoint and otherwise for the different unique artists that are on the community, et cetera, et cetera. So there's different tactics that you deploy, but you you actually have to do both. You can't just pick one and side with that. From a collector's perspective, when I, when I look on Tezos, I do see a very clear you know delineation. On one side, there is the, what I would call the, the children of Hikak Nunk, which is, you know, object and hang next and etc you know all the you know sites that, that came from from there which is still very much kind of that, that indie sort of feel to them mostly um, mm-hmm. 
Then there's a FX hash, which is essentially, uh, it can be positioned against sort of art blocks on Ethereum as kind of that alternative sort of generative art platform. And, and I think the positioning is quite, it's quite good against art blocks as being sort of that alternative. Yeah. I, mean, I feel like there's, there's a lot cooler stuff happening on FX hash than, than is on art blocks, which is um, almost sort of the corporate cousin, um, almost. There's that indie side. And then, as you said, there's, there's a lot of corporate stuff going on, right? And yeah. how do you think that can coexist, not, not just now, but, but also even, you know, going to the future? I mean, I think there's, I guess I put it this way, you want them to coexist. This is actually the best case scenario. And I'll, and I'll explain why. Because so NFT started as, let's simplify and say they're one of one artwork, right? Like that, that was probably the the light bulb that went off in people's heads that, oh, okay, it's art. It's a Picasso that is basically digital. I get it. And there's provenance and, and all this, which is great. And then people started doing this and, and thinking, hey, I need to add value to the NFT because the person that I'm selling it to doesn't understand why they would buy a digital artwork. Well, number one, if that's the case, then you're maybe not educating them on the specifics. And that's fine because there's a learning curve. It takes time. But a lot of people were basically saying, I need to do more. Uh, I need to make my NFTs different. I need to add other type of value. And so they started adding utility or they start adding physical items to it. Um, and I think that's still a trend. Now, um, utility is important. But I think if you ask the artist community, they'll say, uh, a good chunk of them will say, I don't want utility in my artwork. I want my artwork to be the artwork. You buy the artwork because you want to appreciate the artwork. Like, let it stand on its own. So it's, there are some, I, I believe there's a good contingency of artists that would feel that utility diminishes the value proposition of the artwork itself. The reason why I'm mentioning this is that the brands, they need utility more than they need this, the, the, the veneer or the, the attractiveness of the art. Now, some of these brands have incredible IP, uh, you know, that they can monetize. I mean, the intellectual property of a, of a Red Bull or a McLaren, et cetera, et cetera, is fairly vast. So, and, and they are totally within their rights to uh, commercialize it and celebrate with their user base uh, by, by providing it um, as something that could be activated or, or purchased as an NFT. But they're looking at what can I do to engage with a fan base directly, and in, in you know in a nutshell, it's more utility driven. You know, they're they're looking at it and saying, can I gamify it? Can I create a bridge to the user directly and engage with them directly? And it becomes effectively a really powerful mechanism for brand engagement. Um, and in that category of NFT. What you're selling when you're selling an NFT, you're actually selling future engagement. So you're committing to doing something special for the user later on. And I know that does happen on the art side, especially on the PFP side. But for the for brands, that's primarily what they're doing. You know, you want to unlock access to events like races or uh, games, et cetera, VIP passes, best backstage access, et cetera. And the NFT could be a vehicle for that. So... I guess what I'm saying is the two camps have to coexist. Both um, provide uh, like different use cases. The, the corporate camp is more driven towards utility and it's more of the architecture or the infrastructure, I should say, 
of the NFT that's attractive to them as a means of engaging their very, very large user bases. We're talking a massive amount of users that would be interfacing on a regular basis on that side of the of the NFT spectrum. Then you have the artist community, which really started the, I really think they started the whole NFT movement and they want to preserve the authenticity and the, the creativity of the artwork. And, and I think many of them don't want to like add too much utility or, or even consider it because they want it to be art. Um, so maybe I'm making generalizations here, but, but I feel like the two camps have to coexist and you, and you kind of just have to, you know, educate each one or at least engage with each one and solve problems for, for each one. I don't think there should be tension between the two because it's quite different. You know, an NFT of, uh, of a very large brand globally, I would use Coca-Cola as an example, shouldn't really offend the uh, artist community if they're doing NFTs to engage their fans. That's, that's my thought, at least. So, Mark, we are going to leave you with our traditional last question, which is, who is your favorite artist? Oh, first of all, I appreciate the discussion greatly. Um, and I could talk for hours on end about anything NFT and blockchain related in Tezos. There's tremendous talent on Tezos. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the name of, uh, if I have to pick someone, I'll, I'll pick this artist. But I should say anything on FX hash is epic. And uh, there's a new platform called APDO, which is also really cool. It's like this matrix of pixels. It's just really cool um, that I really enjoy collecting on. I guess for the artist uh, would have to be a generative artist and it would probably be matt dolores i can't say his name yeah i just love his work it's just so beautifully done so he's we actually had we had his work as part of the art basel miami beach and the my team can can confirm that i was just dazzled by it and every single time one of his images popped up i was just i wanted to buy it so um i, I just love his work Awesome. Mark, it's been a pleasure having you on the on the show. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Floor is Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and follow. And give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor is Rising. You can reach out to us or send us a question. Just send us a DM at Floor is Rising.